This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, check out audibletrial.com slash lead. This is Michael Rayner, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? <laughs> as soon as I figure that out, I'll give you a call. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I'm Michael Rayner. I'm the uh, innovation team leader inside the, uh, the eminence function at Deloitte. I've been at Deloitte uh, now for, uh, for 13 years. I joined in 2000 upon receiving my uh, doctorate at the, uh, at the Harvard Business School. And uh, when I'm feeling good about things, I'm, uh, I'm a professor with no students and a consultant with no clients. So what's not to like about that? Uh, I'm, uh, I do uh, a variety and uh, involved in a variety of research streams and, uh, and do have the opportunity to work with clients when, uh, when the topic of my research intersects with the, with the nature of the challenges that they face. Um, as, uh, after a rather uh, meandering start, I've, I found myself focusing on the, on the topics of uh, innovation and strategy. And, uh, and uh, my two most recent books, I suppose, are uh, my best attempt so far to write down what I think I've learned about each. Uh, in 2000, uh, 2011, I had a book called The Innovator's Manifesto, uh, which was uh, an exploration of what I felt was uh, uh, a set of new insights into the topic of innovation and disruptive innovation in particular. And then most recently, uh, The Three Rules, which came out in May, is uh, is my take on what I think defining what I think are the defining uh, attributes of the strategies that are most likely to deliver superior long-term profitability. And if you, if, to our listeners, if you're not familiar with Michael's name, it's it's partly my fault. The Leader Lab site aims to to talk about everybody who's at the intersection of leadership, innovation, and strategy. And Michael has been there for for years and years. He's a bit humble in telling you who he is, because in addition to those books, uh, he co-authored the Innovator Solution along with Clay, Christ, Clay Christensen. You've probably heard of him. He also is um, uh, the author of one of my sort of secret favorite books on strategy, which is called The Strategy Paradox. But but I'm particularly excited today to talk about The Three Rules, his new book on how exceptional companies think, mostly because I get excited whenever there are books that are simple, easily applicable, but also just steeped in research. And that's what that's what this book is. I, I, I want to encourage people, as they, if they pick up a copy of it, they're going to see it's, it's pretty thick, and yet it seems to advocate only three rules. And the reason for that is, in addition to advocating for those three rules, it also shows you all of the data behind why those three rules came about. And actually, Michael, that's the first question I have for you, is tell me a bit about this multi-year study you did that led to the three rules. Sure, sure. It's, uh, depending on how, you, on how you want to count, uh, this began anywhere between quite literally five and ten years ago. Uh, my uh, co-author and longtime colleague and friend, uh, Mumtaz Ahmed, who is in fact the chief strategy officer uh, for Deloitte in the U.S., um, uh, and I had, had long been curious, uh, as many as many observers of, and participants in the business world are, about what drives superior performance. In some sense, that's, uh, that's the, the holy grail of, uh, of pretty much all business people uh, in one form or another. And um, we followed the field pretty closely and were students of the genre of what we'd come to call success studies. So these are the books that attempt to uncover the secrets of success by studying companies that have been successful. Uh, you can put in search of excellence and good to great and what really works in any number of books into that particular category. 
and uh, despite the uh, uh, the uh, the nature of that work, some of it very influential, some of it very popular, some of it uh, uh, really very credible uh, academic work in its own way, uh, we really felt that that itch had not been scratched. And uh, in particular, what concerned us was the notion that the companies that were typically singled out for study uh, really seemed to be chosen in, when it got right down to it, fairly arbitrary ways. People would look at a 10-year period and say, okay, who's beat the market by tenfold over 10 years? And that sounds like it's an important uh, level of performance, but the bad news is maybe it's not. If we've learned anything over the last few years in the focus on behavioral economics, it's that our intuitions are really terrible judges of what's a significant difference. And so we set out to try and build, if you will, an actuarial table for corporate performance to understand which companies had delivered the kind of performance that was truly demonstrably as close to irrefutably exceptional as we could find. And that answering that one question probably took us three years to nail that shot. Uh, we worked very closely with uh, Professor Andy Henderson at the University of Texas at Austin and, in fact, ended up with an academic refereed uh, paper in the Strategic Management Journal uh, detailing our method. Um, perhaps most significantly, when we used the method that we ultimately landed on and applied it to the data and the samples that were used by other researchers, what we discovered is that in the vast majority of cases, the vast majority of the exceptional companies those other folks were looking at were actually no indistinguishable from lucky random walkers. And so in short, when you look at books like In Search of Excellence or Good to Great, and you look at the companies, the allegedly great companies that they were studying, um, they, were, they actually were looking at companies that you couldn't distinguish from the merely lucky. And so as a consequence, even though their conclusions might not necessarily be wrong, the evidence that they have to support their conclusions is actually not nearly as robust or as convincing as you might be inclined to think. Uh, and so I appreciate your comment that uh, the three rules, uh, we hope, is succinct and, uh, and clear and, and, and ultimately simple without being simplistic. But we really wanted to give people the reasons why we came to those conclusions because ultimately um, we hope people will make decisions that matter based on the advice that we offer. Oh, no, uh, I totally agree. And I, what I love about your, if I could geek out on research methodology, one of the things I love is you're, you're upfront about it's not just a, a successful company to unsuccessful, you know, comparison as in sort of to, to pick on the, the good to great model. It's not just two companies, one took off, the other stayed the same. It's the idea of actually having to look at, at trios of companies to figure out what are the difference between the ones that had, uh, you call them miracle workers, but had phenomenal success. What are the ones that had a little bit you know, less success, but but decent run on a longer run of time. And then what are the average Joes? And you find sometimes if you just do an A-B comparison, you can find some differences. But then when you notice that the A, the successful company, that same idea was mirrored by a C, a C company that wasn't as successful, you start to be able to really winnow it down. And that perhaps that's why there's only three real rules instead of if you look at a lot of the other sort of success studies, they're usually seven or 12 or you know at the very least five. So it's a wonderful research methodology for, for figuring all that out. No, well, thank you. No, I, I'm, I'm I think part of the reason we ended up with, uh, with so few rules, and, and uh, we may get a chance to come to this in a minute, I've been accused of there actually being only two, but I will, uh, uh, I, I will go to my grave uh, defending the third rule. Um, but uh, uh, the, um, the reason we ended up with so relatively few is the, the diversity of 
the performance profiles and the diversity of the industries and the population of companies we had to account for. Uh, and so what we ended up with, uh, I hope, is, is three rules that are actionable, that are more than just truisms, uh, but that really do account for a broad range of, of outcomes. And they do exactly that. And I will defend that third rule with you. It's it's personally my favorite. However, that third rule is not going to make any sense unless we talk about the first two. So let's talk about the first two rules. Then we'll talk about the third one. Um, the first rule is better before cheaper. Tell me a bit what that means. Sure. So it's, uh, it's essentially uh, the way in which companies that deliver exceptional performance answer the question, how am I going to create value for customers? Uh, and the way they choose to create value for customers systematically is by focusing on better before cheaper. So if you think of uh, essentially two ways in which companies can differentiate themselves from their competition, they can either have better products or lower prices, right? They can be better or they can be cheaper. And uh, there's nothing in strategy theory that's going to tell you which of those two you should pick, right? So. Uh, the, the classic uh, formulation of strategic differentiation says you need to be different from your competition, um, but it doesn't tell you in what way you should be different from your competition. Now, that's not strategy theory's fault, I mean, but it, it sort of it lays out this particular way of thinking about the world. Um, and, uh, and so what we found is that companies that deliver superior performance do it by being different in a particular way, which is they differentiate based on non-price dimensions of performance. And so we've said that in, uh, in something uh, more closely approximating American English by calling it better before cheaper. And, and I got really excited when I read this chapter and found kind of the evidence I'd been looking for because I – in the strategy world, I've rallied against this sort of principles of strategy. You know, every entry-level MBA class talks about differentiation or low cost. And I maintain that, that low cost, or as you call it in the book, cheaper, it's it's not a real strategy. Yes, it will differentiate you, but best case scenario, you win the race to the bottom and find all of your attempts at profitability on this teeny little margin. And so when you read through the examples of these companies and the research supports the idea that you know, going better in some regard is a, is a much better strategy. And my favorite example, though I uh, do not own a single thread of their clothing and I'm not really a big fan of them, my, my favorite example is actually Abercrombie & Fitch, who when they were competing – sorry – no, no, I was just going to say, you're, that doesn't surprise me. I don't think you're in their, in, in, in their target demo. So I, I am <laughs> definitely not. But so when they were, if I understand it right, when they were competing, there was a time where everybody in the industry was beginning to sort of cut prices, and they said, no, better before cheaper. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You can look at the, uh, uh, at the press reports, uh, sort of when the Great Recession started to really bite, you know, 2009, 2010, and uh, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but I remember press accounts saying things like, you can recognize an Abercrombie and Fitch store these days because they're the only ones with no customers in them. Um, and the reason that happened, at least in the eyes of this particular analyst, was that Abercrombie had dug in its heels and said, look, we're not going to discount. Uh, everybody else is slashing their prices. And to be fair, Abercrombie did discount its prices, but not by nearly as much as its competitors. Um, and since it was going from a higher price point in the first place, its price premium over its competitors actually got wider as the recession got deeper. Um, and yet, right, um, Abercrombie dug in its heels and took a lot of heat for that. People said, "You absolutely need to be cutting price. You you need to be to you need to be uh, more price competitive." And what's happened is that with recovery, 
uh, Abercrombie's profitability has rebounded uh, much more strongly than many of its competitors because it has not trained its customers that its T-shirts don't need to cost $30 after all. Uh, it has it it has preserved the prestige of its brand uh, at the price of some material, but relatively short run pain, and uh, keeping its eye on that long term on the fact that it was playing a repeated game over time and implicitly following the better before cheaper rule, I think has paid dividends, both literally and figuratively. Oh, I, I I totally agree, and as you said, I'm not in their target market, and so they kind of ignore me. But from a from a business <laughs> standpoint, you can, you can kind of, you look at the idea and you look at it as a perfect example of yeah, we're going to pursue something other than trying to be lowest cost, trying to be that cheaper differentiator, uh, and, and it works, and it works really really well, and it brings us to our second rule because in some ways these rules are kind of all three of them are interrelated, but the second rule that you talk about in the book is revenue before. Cost. Tell me a bit about revenue before cost. Sure, sure. Well, my view is that that's the way uh, companies that deliver superior long-term profitability answer a second question, which is how do they capture value for themselves? Right. So rule one, better before cheaper, says should do you compete on price or quality, if you will, and the answer is compete on better. Uh, Rule number two says when you drive profitability, do you do that by driving revenue up or by driving cost down? Um, because the arithmetic of profit is completely indifferent, right? The, the, the arithmetic doesn't care whether you increase revenue or decrease cost. All else equal, a one-unit move in either one of them is going to move profit by that same one unit. Um, but, but the real world actually does appear to have an opinion on this matter, uh, and the companies that deliver superior long-term profitability are the companies that pull the revenue lever rather than pulling the cost lever. Yeah, and and my um, it it's one of those it's the intuitive things that I feel like a lot of times if you asked an entrepreneur or a freelancer, they would in, in, inevitably tell you, yeah, that makes perfect sense, revenue before cost. And then somehow, somehow in in school of management and strategic management, we we complicate it. You know, I think back to the early days of strategy consulting when it was all about, well, sell your product at a loss, trying to get up market share and if you get market share you will drive down costs and you will stay and remain the leader and I've seen so many companies try and apply that cost curve and uh, and bomb royally I've seen a few successes for sure but it, the idea of just focusing on revenue before cost is it's one of those things that should be common sense but I don't know if it is and one of my favorite examples in the book about this is interesting because it's, it's not actually one of the different trios of companies but I think it's a perfect example and that is family dollar because if you think about about Family Dollar and where they are in the marketplace, you would immediately say, oh, they're a Walmart competitor. Uh, but they're not. They're a competitor that really is focusing in on revenues over costs. No, I think that's fair. I mean, it, uh, the, the notion that, uh, that somehow cost-based competition uh, uh, can deliver superior profitability is one that, that is, a credible, is a credible view to hold. Right? You can look at, for example, the low-cost carrier airlines uh, that have been so successful all over the world. Uh, you can look at the uh, at, at the largest and and, uh, um, and and most dominant discount retailers uh, in the world, and they very explicitly compete on lower price and drive their results through lower cost. Um, so the notion that having a price and cost driven competitive position makes sense is is a perfectly plausible thing to believe in my view. Um, but to your point, Family Dollar shows that even in discount retail. Uh, it is possible to uh, to be not just possible, but in fact, it is typically the case 
that uh, companies are successful by differentiating based on non-price dimensions of performance. Family Dollar has a uh, enjoys a price premium of five to six percent on a comparable basket of goods over some of the leading discounters, um, uh, and in fact has higher costs than those same uh, discount retail competitors. But net net, uh, it it more than makes up for the higher cost because the value it creates for its customers, even seemingly very price sensitive customers is such that they are willing to pay more for the value that the family dollar format has historically provided. So uh, when I look at the family dollar example, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it, I say, you know, rev- better before cheaper, revenue before cost, uh, even in discount retail, for crying out loud, right? I mean, if I told you Barney's was driven by higher prices, that wouldn't surprise you. Um, but a lot of people kind of uh, open their eyes a little wider when you say that even in discount retail, uh, it's about better and it's about revenue. No, I, I totally agree. And it's a, it's a wonderful example. And it's funny that, honestly, until I had read the three rules, I haven't even thought of it, which is ironic because I drive by a lot more family dollar stores than I do Walmarts because of where they're located. Uh, and yet it never, it still never occurred to me. Now, moving on, now we, we talked about you'll go to your grave defending the third rule. I'm, I'm right there with you. I believe it is a, a rule. It's probably the most important of the three rules. And the third rule is there are no other rules. And I I think what I love about this is it doesn't say don't do anything. It says there are no other rules. Whatever you do, stay true to these two rules. Yeah, I think I think you've summarized that well. Um, The uh, the, a large part of what made this why this project took so long is that we started out thinking the reverse of rule three. We started out thinking there would be a lot of rules that we would find all kinds of things um, where, for example, it would be about international expansion or it would be about uh, mergers and acquisitions or um, you you mentioned the Innovator's Solution and and I talked about the Innovator's Manifesto. So my my other life, if you will, is is focused in some ways dedicated to the importance and the, the value to be created through successful innovation. I was really thinking innovation will be at the top of the list. And I got to tell you, it kind of broke my heart to have to give that up um, because innovation is not a rule, right? We just we couldn't find that as a, as a systematic driver of success. We went down a long list, leadership, culture, uh, yeah, you name it, right, of things that we looked as closely as we possibly could to try and to determine some sort of systematic relationship between key behaviors in these other categories uh, and, and we just couldn't come up with anything. And so in the end, we felt compelled to really draw a double underline around the fact that, you know what, it's it's better before cheaper, it's revenue before cost, and all of the other choices you make need to be seen through that prism. There really are no other rules as far as we could tell. I I totally agree, and that's why I, I love the emphasis on it, and I, I feel bad for those people that will try and argue that there's only really two rules instead of three, because the third one I think is important if, if framed properly. Again, it's not a don't do anything, but focus on these two things. And truthfully, the title, The Three Rules, sounds a little better than The Two Rules. I just feel like it's a well, better... Well, I, I, I will admit that it was a happy coincidence that uh, you know ever since the ancient Greeks, uh, good literature has always been written uh, around groups of three, so that uh, uh, maybe there, maybe there's a deep underlying reason for that. No, I, I, it could be. It could be. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about these ideas. We we went over all three rules, um, and and all three of them are uh, kind of make perfect sense. And we've got 
300 plus pages of data to support why they make perfect sense. But I want to ask you, what would you say to an organizational leader, uh, a maybe middle level manager even, who is trying to apply these lessons of the three rules, but in an organization that's already picked that maybe their strategy is going to go counter to these? How do we begin the process of of moving into uh, coming in line with the three rules? Yeah, great question. Um, my take on it, I guess, is that with two things going on. There's, there's first, conceptually, how does one think about the rules and, and how do you use them? And second, um, kind of an implement, a practical implementation issue, given the sorts of circumstances you've described. So let me answer those in, in reverse order. The, the practical implementation issues, I think, uh, require people to start thinking about changes at the margin. Uh, is very even if you were the CEO of of a, of a large complex company, you can't just snap your fingers and say I'm going to change the core of how this organization behaves. So um, you know, nobody has enough power and influence to make those things happen. So I think there it becomes thinking about those uh, those uh, seemingly unimportant decisions at the margin where you can begin experimenting with going in a different direction and real. And this is sort of change management 101. I'm not saying anything. I think people uh, listening to this don't already know, right? You start with something small, relatively unimportant and low risk. You demonstrate some measure of success, uh, show that it can, in fact, work and be successful, and then build on that to do more of what's working and arguably less of what's not. Um, I I don't know that I've got any great binding insights to offer there. Um, But here's where I think it, it does get a little more challenging, which is, how, how do you use the rules to make that happen systematically over time? And, and the metaphor that's proved really quite uh, powerful in talking about these ideas, I wish I'd made more of it in the book, frankly, is that the rules are really a compass, right? If you're trying to get from where you are to where you want to go, uh, ideally you would like a map, right? Because a map gives you a step-by-step, turn-by-turn list of instructions uh, so that you can get exactly from exactly where you are to exactly where you want to go by the most efficient route possible. I don't have one of those, right, because remember, there are no other rules. What I can give you is a compass, and the compass points the direction in which you want to head, and it says, if you want to head north, I can tell you where north is, and north is better before cheaper and revenue before cost. Now, it's going to take an enormous amount of creativity for you to figure out how to keep moving north, because as you walk through the woods, there'll be deadfall and rivers and canyons and quicksand and heaven knows what, and you're going to have to figure out how to get there. Sometimes you'll have to detour east or west and maybe even double back and go south for a while. Um, and that's that's the hard work of day-to-day management. But the hope is that the rules provide uh, a compass that people can believe and have faith in so that they can keep moving in the right direction consistently over time. And part of the reason I think that's so important is that, uh, and this alludes to a comment you made earlier, some folks have, have, have looked at the rules and said, well, that's kind of obvious. You know, uh, so I, I don't compete on price and you can't cut your way to greatness. You know, didn't we already know that? And I guess my observation would be that lots of folks say they believe that, but when you actually look at how organizations behave when times get tough, what do they reach for? They reach for price cutting and they reach for cost cutting, which makes me believe that in their heart of hearts, they actually don't believe that it's about better and it's about revenue, right? So all of a sudden, there's kind of this, this cognitive dissonance between people, what they say, between what managers and leaders say they feel is important and the way they actually behave. And my hope is that the three rules and the evidence that we provide can give people the courage and the confidence uh, to follow the better angels of their nature. 
I I agree, and you know, I was thinking about it as you were as you were just using the metaphor of a compass, and you said, you know, here's here's true north. True north is better before cheaper. True north is revenue before cost, and it and there is your place. I know you said earlier you wish there was a place for innovation in these rules. There's the place for the creativity and innovation because in order to get that, it's going to take some innovative actions. It's going to take some creative thinking to figure out how to line yourself up with True North, especially if you are ways away and on a course that is degrees away from True North. Yeah, I think I think that I think that's probably I think that's probably right. Um it really the, if we could write a detailed guaranteed surefire uh, 100% sure thing uh, recipe for how any company can be fabulously successful. Um, uh, I can tell you two things. Um, uh, I wouldn't write it down in a book, and I wouldn't sell it for 1995. Hmm. <laughs> well, you know, you could release it to the world, and once everybody starts doing it, we're going to have to find out how to do the next thing to differentiate yeah, yourself. Yeah, well, from exactly. Rules. So, yeah, uh, if everybody follows the rules, will they still be effective? All I can say is, I hope we get to find out. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great point. Well, I want to transition a bit away from the book and and on to you, if that's okay, and ask sure. you two questions. What are you reading right now? Uh, right now, I'm reading a, a bunch of material on uh, on innovation and entrepreneurship. So, uh, as I said, my 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 other life kind of focuses on this question of innovation, and uh, I'm I'm focused right now on questions of sort of how innovative has the economy and the U.S. economy in particular been over the last few years, um, what, uh, what constitutes true innovation, and when it comes to innovation processes, um, uh, do, we act, do we know what needs to be done to be successful, but we just don't do it? So is innovation kind of a weight loss problem, right? We know precisely what to do to lose weight, so it's not the physiology that needs understanding, it's the psychology of behavior that needs understanding. Or is successful innovation actually um, something much more challenging, right? Is it really a, a series of really important unanswered questions that, uh, for example, curing cancer would fall into, where we can say a few things, but, boy, there's a lot to learn. Uh, so that's what I'm wrestling with these days. So I've, I've, I've kind of shifted gears a little since the release of the book, um, at least in terms of uh, my research and, and what I'm reading and, and what comes next. Well, you are, uh, you're totally speaking my language there. Uh, I am fascinated with the intersection between leadership, innovation, and strategy, and I love when I can meet other folks that, that are. And so as a kind of a follow-up to what you're reading and what you're researching uh, now, what, what's next for you? What are you looking forward to in the future? Well, my hope is that some of what's emerged as, uh, as a result of the, these two streams of work, so the three rules, which is essentially about strategy, right? It's about differentiation and how to capture the value that stems from that differentiation and the, the stream of work that, uh, that's characterized my investigation, the topic of innovation, uh, allows uh, for actually a, I hope, a very profitable disentanglement of those two concepts. I think both the terms strategy and innovation are things that get thrown around with uh, with abandon, and uh, uh, and I think that's too bad because I think by differentiating between the two we can actually make real progress. The way I've come to think about it, I guess, is that strategy is fundamentally about exploiting uh, uh, and embracing constraints, right? The the uh, the ability to to be different from your competitors simply because. They can't do what you're doing without abandoning what they are already doing. Uh, and so exploiting constraints is, is, a, is the fundamental source of strategic differentiation. 
And when it comes to being different, what the three rules answers is the way in which you should be different in order to be most successful. Innovation, on the other hand, is fundamentally about breaking constraints. It's about finding a way to go beyond the limits of what defines your competitor's business model. So whereas uh, differentiation says, I'm going to focus on superior service, that's going to incur higher cost, but that's okay because the increased value will more than compensate me for that, and I will be more profitable as a result. So that's, that's exploiting constraints. Innovation is breaking constraints. It says, I have found a way to deliver higher quality at lower cost, and that's going to make me yet more profitable. So innovation is great work if you can get it, but it's not always there to be had. And so the, the bias when it comes to being different is to pursue better before cheaper. And what I think, uh, you know, my bias for now at least, is that when it comes to innovation, the type of innovation that is most likely to be successful is disruptive rather than sustaining. Uh, and so understanding the difference between strategy and innovation and then within each which of the various types you should pursue is likeliest to deliver the results you desire is, is kind of the, the theory of everything, if you will, that's, uh, that's beginning to emerge. Mm, and and may, maybe we'll be lucky enough to stumble upon it as a theory of everything. Maybe we'll just have to have uh, two rules of innovation, how exceptional companies innovate. In the meantime, what we do have from the strategy front is some insight into how exceptional companies think or how exceptional companies have thought and how you should too, and that is in the three rules. So I want to encourage our listeners to check that out and begin to pursue the tactics that actually are proven to work. Michael, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Not at all. It's been a real pleasure. 